Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse Podcast, Volume 6, Issue 257, The Legend of Zelda, Skyward Sword. You can play along with us. Cane and Rinse, Volume 6, the entire schedule up to and including Issue 300 can be found on the Cane and Rinse website. But for those looking into the near future, the next five issues will cover... They Breathe, that's a short game and uh, an inexpensive one if you fancy uh, joining in with that show and you can hear from the development team on that podcast. It's a fascinating listen. We've already recorded it. Uh, After that, we have Rare's Blast Core or Blast Dozer. Chibi Robo, Plug Into Adventure. Uh, that's our first non-Zelda Nintendo game for a while, I think. But then mm. it is another Zelda, the last one of our Odyssey, The Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds. And following that, a complete change of pace and genre with Project Gotham Racing and Project Gotham Racing 2. Head to canerince.com for articles, features, reviews, links to our forum, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel. We do all that stuff. Yes, we do. It's not just the podcast. And if you enjoy it and these podcasts, you can support us in a number of ways. If you go to patreon.com slash you can donate a dollar a month or whatever you think, whatever you can afford. And that gets ploughed back into the making of the many hours of podcasts that we produce each year. You could also buy a T-shirt or a bag featuring either the Cane and Rinse logo or the Sound of Play logo. That's at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk. And yes, we do have that other podcast, Sound of Play. It's all about the love of video games music, but we also end up talking games. We talk about, sometimes we talk in depth about the pieces that we're listening to. Sometimes we just lean back and listen to the music itself. It's a lot of fun. Check that out. Review, rate and subscribe, Sound of Play and this Cane and Rinse Uh, on iTunes or Pocket Casts or Stitcher Radio or TuneIn or whichever other platform you get these podcasts from. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 257 are Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Leah Haydu. Hey, hi. And Mikhail Croder. Hello. Hello. So here we are, the penultimate of our Legend of Zelda series. We elected not to do Triforce Heroes in the end, uh, and I don't think anyone's raised too many complaints about that, least of all the panellists. That may be terribly harsh, as I haven't actually played it, but uh, reception to that one did not seem to be uh, overwhelmingly joyous. Uh, And we were originally planning on doing Breath of the Wild at the, the end of the series, but then it got delayed, and it's only just going to be coming out around the time we release our A Link Between Worlds podcast, so we'll do that someday in the future. So here we are, Skyward Sword, Nintendo EAD, of course. Uh, This game had the longest development time in the history of the franchise. This was the first home console game to be directed by Hidemara Fujibayashi, who, as we know, had previously, uh, as well as having worked on Magical Tetris Challenge on the N64 uh, and a couple of uh, slightly more obscure PlayStation Saturn games, had uh, worked on the Game Boy Color games that we covered quite some time ago now, uh, quite some time ago, The Oracle of Ages and Seasons, and Four Swords and Minish Cap and Phantom Hourglass. And he is also the director on Breath of the Wild. So it's interesting because I think A.G. Aonima uh, still is often the, the, spe- uh, the, the front person, the spokesman for the series, but actually... Uh, Aonima's now a producer, which is the role that Miyamoto had after he uh, moved upstairs one. And uh, Fujibayashi has yet to sort of generally, I, I think he has been seen in some publicity. You, you guys might know better, but I think Aonima still 
tends to take centre stage. I guess he's just been doing it a long time uh, since Majora's Mask, so he's uh, he knows what's what. Uh, the main designer on the game is credited as, as Ryuji Kobayashi and the writers are Fujibashi-san, but mainly Naoki Mori, uh, the, who wrote the script for the cinematic scenes, who came into the role uh, after one and a quarter years into development. And the cinematic scenes were directed by Shigeki Yoshida, uh, worked with Mori. Uh, and the game's theme is the use of the sword, uh, and it sort of serves as an origin story for the Master Sword weapon. Uh, we'll talk, obviously, more about the plot in a bit. Uh, five composers worked on the game. Koji Kondo only provided one piece, which is the sort of background story piece at the beginning. Uh, and yes, it was released on the Wii in November 2011, all around the world. No delays for regions, maybe a day or two difference. And it has recently been re-released on Wii Virtual Console. Sorry, Wii U Virtual Console. Uh, Wii, Wii Virtual Console on the Wii U, but only in America so far. Uh, and the reviews were positive at the time. It was reviewed by 61 outlets and the average score was the healthiest for some time for a Zelda with 93.15%. And that included maximum marks from uh, the UK magazine Edge, from Eurogamer, from Game Informer, from IGN and from Videogamer.com. Looking at it now, the user ratings, that is punters voting how much they like stuff on websites, on Nintendo Life, which is quite a positive Nintendo community, as you'd imagine. It has an 8.8, .8, which is obviously a little lower. And over on Metacritic, it has an, a flat 8. Uh, it won a lot of awards at the time. Best game at IGN, also best graphics, best sound, best story in the Wii category, reader's choice in the best overall game category, game of the year awards from EGM, GameSpot Edge and Nintendo Power, multiple nominations at the 2012 DICE Awards, uh, Games Developers Choice Awards and BAFTA Games Awards. And it sold, it started off strong but faded quite quickly, probably due to the age of the Wii. Uh, ended up selling 3.95 million copies worth uh, worldwide. So, our personal histories with the game. Mikhail, did you get this when it came out, November two, uh, 2011? Yes, I did. Um, and this is uh, probably, uh, yes, has to be some sort of uh, disclaimer. Because I was right. working, at, I was working at Nintendo of Europe at the time of uh, the game's release in 2011. Of course, full disclosure, Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and in my role, I was actually involved in the creation of the promotional microsite for the game. Um, uh, not managing it, but I was uh, delivering the text content for the Dutch version, uh, checking videos, and doing rounds of bug checking. Cool. And this probably explains a little bit of bias in my general sentiment around the game. But um, I would also like to add that I don't unconditionally love any game by, uh, made by Nintendo, uh, whether I was involved in marketing and promotion for it or not. Of course. Yeah. And even within the Zelda series, there are games that I hold in a much lower regard than I do Skyward Sword. Mm. Um, so it was a pretty special time. And in the six months leading up to the game's release, more and more assets started passing our eyes. And me and uh, the fellow Zelda nuts among my colleagues were getting very excited indeed. Uh, and this was only fueled by the 10 out of 10 review by Edge, which I read yeah. before I received my own internally ordered copy, uh, coming with the 25th anniversary orchestra CD. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I don't 
I don't see Edge as a Bible of any sort for for uh, gaming critique, but uh, not too many games received a ten, so That's that right. explains. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was it kind of explains uh, how I was that I was even more eager to actually start playing the game myself. Uh, and as usual, what's usual the case for me with a home console Zelda release? Ever since a link to the past, I put everything else aside and started playing through the game in my spare time maybe taking around two, three weeks before the holiday period to get to the end. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, maybe even more so than any home console re- uh, released Zelda game since uh, Ocarina of Time. Right. But with time passing, I've seen the on and offline discourse around Skyward Sword turn more and more sour mm. and received some very scathing and sometimes even very well-reasoned scathing uh, critiques. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't Nowadays, it doesn't seem like I see too many people having much nice to say about it at all. We're going to hear a good spread of opinions from our community, from yeah. uh, from those which you refer to now, but also some quite at the other end of the spectrum. So uh, it should right, be interesting yeah. from that point of view. Leah, you weren't working for Nintendo at the time. I, I was not working for Nintendo. I uh, I wasn't even working for GameStop at that point. I had uh, right. I had moved on from there. But I did pick up uh, Skyward Sword right at release, and um, much much like Mikhail, I uh, I did put everything else aside and um, kind of just mm. focused right on uh, on Skyward Sword. I did. I, I don't remember if copies of the game at launch came without the Wii remote. I, I, I imagine they must have. Uh, but I, as this game was only playable with the Motion Plus attachment, you kind of had to have that. Maybe you yeah. didn't have to get the one that came with the gold uh, Wii Remote with the uh, Motion Plus built-in uh, bundled with it, uh, but I did. I, I have that Wii Remote still, uh, yep. and I it bugs me to this day that I don't have a gold nunchuck to go along with it, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's another story. Um, but yeah, I, I put quite a lot of time into this, uh, and I actually kind of remember at the time there being some negative feedback. So it was kind of surprising to me in preparing for this to look and see that at the time there was such a a, a an outsurge of positive feedback for the game because uh, mm-hmm. I kind of remember it being the other end now it has been you know six years almost since the game came out so it's mm-hmm. possible that I've just kind of forgotten how it was but uh, I, I did find that very interesting I, I enjoyed it uh, at launch and um, I have not played through the entire game again um, this time around no, but uh, yes yes <laughs> um, but I, I was able to get into it a little bit and to uh, to refresh myself with some videos and playthroughs uh, uh, otherwise and um, I I'm very excited to uh, to chat about some of the things that uh, I liked about it and some that I didn't as well mm. yes indeed Josh how about you so this was the first um, Zelda game that I was in t- uh, anticipating. Um, so yeah. previous to this, I was kind of catching up on my history. Whereas this time, I saw the reveal trailer at E3. Um, I saw all the video footage that was coming up, uh, coming out, showing off the the motion controls for the sword, for the bow, and just showing off some of the worlds that we'd be exploring. And I was really really excited for skyward sword um <clears throat> something about the 
aesthetic of the game and we'll we'll talk about this later but the music was really grabbing mm. me with all the mm-hmm. footage they were putting out and i was up for a game that really sold the promise of the wii with that kind of motion controlled sword combat because when you first picked up a wii and you held the wiimote in your hand that's what you wanted to do with it. At least, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I speak for myself here. That's what I wanted to do yeah. with it. I wanted to pretend I was Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber or a knight with a sword. And the fact that Skyward Sword was promising that was really great. And, um, yeah, so I, pay, uh, I played and completed this um the the day it came i didn't complete it the day it came out i bought it the day it came out and the weeks following uh completed it um recently uh i managed to get a fair way through it um again as we'll note in this podcast it's quite a long game so i wasn't able to finish it again a second time round but uh Yes, uh, I've been reminded uh, a lot of how I felt about it. Uh, Some feelings are stronger than they were uh, before. Some negative feelings are stronger, but there's also some positive feelings that I still very much feel. Hmm. Yes, so I got this for Christmas that year. It was requested by me from my girlfriend, and she duly obliged with the the nice boxed copy with the gold Wii Plus remote. I already ha- had a couple of Wii Plus uh, Wii Motion Plus units from playing other things, but uh, but I wanted the box, and it had the CD in it, and uh, it was gratefully received. And I think I probably stuck it on and played the first little bit at some stage, but. Also, at the end of 2011, I started on another project, this one, called Cana Rinse. And (laughs) so that Mm. kind of took over a lot of my playing time. I felt it was pretty certain that at some stage in the next few years, we'd probably tackle the Legend of Zelda series. And so as time went on, I decided I would save my first playthrough of Skyward Sword for that moment. And so I did. And so I played it for the first time in the last month, uh, beyond the first hour or two I, I may have played up to the first dungeon back in 2011 or early 2012 but I didn't really remember much of it at all uh, so yeah I've played it mostly in the last month uh, the game took me I, I did quite a lot of it I did quite a lot of the extra stuff as well so it was I, I played it for about 60 hours which is by far the longest I've put into any of the Zeldas that we've covered yeah. over the last year and a half uh, and it's interesting to look at the speedrun records the any percent completion record is five hours and one minute and 44 seconds that was set in july 2015 and the hundred percent game is possible to do in seven hours 41 minutes and 20 seconds yeah that was september 2015 so it just goes to show but yes if you spend your time you don't know the game inside out from top to bottom you're looking at probably a minimum i'd say of 40 hours to from start to finish uh, maybe something around that mark anyway. So the development, as I said, was the longest so far in the history of the franchise. I'm not sure if Breath of the Wild is actually going to overtake that or not. I haven't done the maths. Uh, It was some way into development after they started, after Twilight Princess. Obviously, that had been originally coded for the GameCube and then kind of ported to the Wii with some rudimentary-ish motion controls. Yet they started making Skyward Sword before Wii Motion Plus had been finalised and finished and 
packaged and sold, so that actually was only incorporated in the game spec some way down the line. It took quite a bit of recoding and rejigging to obviously the enemies had to be way smarter and things like that to deal with the greater fidelity that was allowed. And as as we you know as we see in the final game, actually a lot of the encounters, both regular mobs and bosses really lean heavily on the fact that you can slash in multiple directions uh and yeah so they marketed the heck out of it there were comics by the the penny arcade guys there were tv commercials featuring the late robin williams and his daughter zelda of course who was famously named uh after the original legend of zelda game from the 80s when she was born i think that's right and so let's get into it issuing a spoiler warning here the timeline of this Legend of Zelda is it exists right at the start. So the Hyrule Historia book came out around the same time as this game, certainly the same year. Yeah, and I think it was another it was it was another promotional item in a way because the opening sort of chapters of the book are very much based around Skyward Sword with lots of concept art and mm-hmm. and there's a a manga in there and stuff like that. So uh, what I, I was surprised playing it now because I'd always been led to believe it was this kind of origin story that actually it still talks about ancient legends going further and further back and heroes that have come before and things that have always <laughs> happened. So it's still, it doesn't really, like it's not the ultimate prequel. They could still go back further, but it does. It's not the big bang of, uh, of Harold Historia. Uh, so there, there's a story to be told even before this one and and that's fine uh you know maybe it should always be eternal maybe there should be no origin story as such but as as we say the the origin of the master sword is is effectively told in this particular version as usual things have Mm. different names uh this is one of the ones with the setup where uh, link is friends with zelda from the off which seems to have become more of a regular thing as the series has gone on We've talked about uh, Spirit Tracks and other games where, or at least they've been put into contact fairly early on or they have some awareness of each other, whereas earlier in the series it was much more about this, you know, ravishing distant princess figure who you were you were sent to rescue. So uh, how do we feel about this particular land? We're not talking about the art here so much as the, the kind of the scenario and the setup and the, the depiction of Link... And the, I guess the tone and the mood as well. Mikhail? I liked how uh, the first, what, what became very memorable for me was the first steps I uh, set on the fir- sur- uh, surface world, which was on the sealed grounds. And it had this air of mystery around it. Uh, the soundtrack was uh, uh, complementing that very well. Mm. Um, yeah, it, fe- it feels like you're in this... Uh, deserted deserted place like uh literally um humanity has moved on from there and it's living now in the sky and it's just it's a world kind of left to its own devices and um it's it's yeah definitely spoke to me so that was sort of compelling the idea that you were visiting rather than a land that's already known to you as such because you your character your link in this game lives in the sky in a in a village called Skyloft which is very small really in in the scheme of things and you're sent down to the land that that has long since been abandoned there's yeah. a notion of going somewhere that's yeah that's like almost alien to link exactly yeah mm. 
Josh, did you find the opening or the or the, the maybe not the opening? We're not talking about necessarily the uh, the schooling of Link. We're talking about the kind of uh, you know just like the opening impre- the early impressions you got from the the atmosphere, the colours, that sort of thing. This game makes a really good first impression, um, especially for someone like me who I I really care about. Um, and I, this is something I keep bringing up, but it, it's important to me. So I apologize yeah. to Kayla Rince, uh listeners that this is a point I keep coming back to. No but need. When, when sound and music and visuals come together in this perfect uh, blend, it really triggers something in my mind that re- just, yes, I'm in, I'm on board. Mm. And the opening of Skyward Sword, when you see the birds soaring through the air and you can see that just that lovely painterly art style and the the sun coming through the the clouds and then that score kicks in that Mm -hmm. lovely you know fully orchestrated score and it's just like wow i'm already i'm i'm already sold i'm 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 ready to go on this adventure and then slowly you get introduced to some of the um character designs like uh, I'm I'm going to talk about this guy later, but Groose is just a fantastic <laughs> character design um, that reminds me of like Disney. Like it's like a Japanese take on Disney characters. Um, the he character, does kind of have a Gaston thing yeah, going on he, there. Yeah, <laughs> he is Gaston basically, and yeah. <laughs> all of that stuff was really endearing to me. And yeah, I I I think that. As the game goes on, it reveals some of its uh, uglier elements. But I think as far as first impressions go, this is one of the strongest in the series. Mm. Leah, do you feel similarly disposed towards it? Something that I kind of find interesting is that Console-wise, now there have been the uh, the DS versions of Zelda games in between, but console-wise, we're coming off of Twilight Princess, which in presentation is very earthy and very dark. Um, mm. And here we are coming into something completely opposed to that. It's very light. It's very airy. It's kind of pastelish, um, at least at the beginning. Now, there, you know, mm. there of course there are some some places where that uh, where that does change, but the visual presentation is so different from what we uh, what we have just seen in uh, in Twilight Princess, and it's it's beautiful. I think it is, it is really well presented. And I like that they uh, took advantage of the fact that maybe the most technical graphics are not the best graphics in this particular, particular situation. You see some kind of impressionistic things there. It's, it's very watercolory and very kind of blurry almost, but not blurry in an indistinct way, just blurry in a, in an intentional way. Uh, And I, I think that that really fits the art style because you are up in the air you're not down on the earth when this whole thing starts off um you know twilight princess you're you're in this shadow realm and you're down you're really down in it and here you're kind of removed from everything when things start off so it fits that it's kind of this light and almost disconnected thing um i i just i i really enjoy that they uh that they set it up 
to be so removed that way. Um, and something else that I, uh, I think we'll probably get into a little bit more, but it, it feels the world itself feels very organic. Uh, and by that, I mean, when you start going into the dungeons and into the areas, they feel more like a part of the world and less like something that you leave your general, uh, you know, your general area and then go into a different area. And this is the dungeon. I mean, you're still doing that, but mm. it feels it feels better integrated to me. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. So from my point of view, obviously, I was coming to this in early 2017. Even when I got this game, even when all of us got this game, we'd all been playing, you know, quotes, HD games for five, six years up to that point. So games in much higher resolution, 720p, whatever, uh, far more pixels per square inch this was late in the Wii's life. And so I guess there had still been some crossover. I'd still been playing some new Wii titles back then. Certainly we on Kane and Rince are all people who go back to much, much older games. But all that said, I can't deny the fact that when I first started playing this in early 2017, coming off the back of some astonishing looking stuff on PlayStation 4 and whatever else and PC... Uh, it was it's it's a little jarring because it's not only the lower resolution although that's part of it it is also the the lower polys there are still some areas which don't look much more polygonal than even ocarina of time there are certain certain ledges and things in places mm. which just look like cubes it's like it's like going back to tomb raider times or something you're just climbing up a, up a cube yeah. and all that stuff is it's not something that I can just completely ignore straight away. However, mm. the longer I played the game, and I played the game for 60-odd hours, the less I cared. And the overall art of it and the the colour and the sumptuous animation and all that sort of thing just left those other considerations in in the dust. They never fully went away. I was always thinking... Wow, Breath of the Wild's going to look amazing, isn't it? You know, just those extra, you know, even yeah. even having come off the back of playing Wind Waker HD and Twilight Princess HD, which Twilight Princess HD is, you know, we talked about how we felt that looked. I thought it was very pretty, but I was again very conscious about its other stuff. It's not just the resolution; it's the lack of kind of dynamic lighting. It's the the even particles in the air are so much chunkier when there's when there's a lower resolution going on mm. and and I don't like to reduce something that I think is ultimately so gorgeous and beautiful and artful to these matters but these are video games there are technical considerations and it does have an impact so yeah. uh, but overall yes but I was I was pretty much hooked on this game for 60 hours and I certainly wasn't thinking oh, got to go back to these rubbish <laughs> graphics again and as I've said many times before uh, I actually quite enjoy playing older polygon games sometimes because yeah. you get the you get the fresh hit all over again if you if you go from playing something on the Wii or the PS2 and then you fire up latest AAA game on on PC or PS4 or Xbox One you go oh my goodness look at the graphics so there's <laughs> there's fun to be had there as well what matters for me more i think when it comes to visuals is that the the design like a feeling that the designers have kind of made everything um 
with the knowledge of their limitations in mind, which is why, like, at the moment I'm playing Resident Evil 2 on the Vita, mm. and yes, that game is, you know, PlayStation-era polygonal uh, block people, but there's, like, a real consistent consideration about the way it uses visuals and the way it uses visual cues, and making sure that all the characters are designed so the important stuff is conveyed. And so despite that game being really old, it it still has like a really potent sense of personality and character expressed through its art. Mm -hmm. And I feel that really, really strongly with Skyward Sword. This game has a visual identity that is overwhelmingly strong for me at least um and i think it it really does kind of um if we're comparing other entries in the series i think it does stand shoulder to shoulder with wind waker in this regard i Mm. i just think so many of the character designs are memorable so many of the enemy designs are memorable and so many of Mm. those little creatures like the qqs and the the mole people Kikwis. and the, and oh the kikwikwis and Ki- the kikwikwis kikwikwis <laughs> um, and those like grumpy sarcastic robots are just I, mm, yeah. all of it is memorable and and I think that supersedes any any like um, negative thoughts I have about the technical aspects of the game. I th- I think so too. That me- that melts away. And you were mentioning the the enemies and the and the characters. And I just love the Bokoblins in this game. It's uh, the just the the sheer amount of expression uh, they have and the, the amount of different reactions to different things and how they jump up and start start uh, squeaking and screaming when they see you. It's uh, it's really a sight to behold. I think uh, yeah. It uh, Josh is saying what I was trying to. It's that they they used what they had rather than tried to push it to what they didn't have and i think they used what they had just so well yeah so famously the art style is in and the color the use of color uh, is inspired by impressionism and post-impressionism paul cezanne in particular and actually what they did here which is something that hadn't really been done before to my knowledge was rather than masking technical limitations uh, as regards to things like draw distance and resolution with fogging or lack of visibility they actually put the backgrounds into a sort of impressionistic state so they become like they almost look like pointillism or something like that Mm -hmm. and uh and I've, i've not heard too many people have a bad word to say about that so mm. and and yeah, the use of color is definitely uh, like I'm no art historian or art expert, but uh, the use of color, having looked at some impressionist and post-impressionist paintings, you can see that the palette is influenced by certain artists, and Cezanne is the one that I think Miyamoto uh, name-checked as as being an influence. Sam Watt from our forum says the art style was certainly one of the few highlights for me. The impressionist aesthetic felt like a fresh and clever design decision. However, the strength of impressionist art is in capturing light reflecting off of the land. Sadly, Skyward Sword's lifeless world and lack of dynamic lighting only serves to diminish and underutilise this aesthetic decision. So it doesn't fully work for everybody, uh, even Mm. though Sam says it's one of the highlights. We'll hear from Sam and, and other community members throughout the podcast. Moving on to, I think, probably one of the most debated elements of Skyward Sword. This is based on 
my research and reading and conversations I've had, obviously this game is new to me. I was somewhat aware of some of these issues that people have with the game. So obviously much has been spoken in our podcasts and elsewhere about Navi and other companions in Zelda games in the past, but Fee, and I have seen it pronounced as Fi, but I'm pretty certain it's Fee, uh, is your companion here. She is a sort of AI. This is a game in which it's set in far more ancient times than other Zeldas, but the technology is far greater. There are machines and signs of industrialization and robots and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and Fee is one of these things, and she has this kind of robotic tone, and she talks about percentage chances of things happening. She often talks about an 85% chance of something happening when clearly it's actually a 100% chance of something happening. <laughs> if, you, if, if you go here and do this thing that I'm telling you to do, there's an 85% chance that you'll find the next thing that you need to do. No, that's 100%, isn't it, Fee? I know how this works. Yeah. Uh, so We're already ahead of her. Yeah, exactly. So this is one of the things that, that, that people talk about. Uh, let's hear from our email correspondent, Matt Sharawara, who emailed in, I think, somewhere some some point around last October. So um, Matt says, in the Zelda series, you play as Link, but interestingly, rarely the same Link. But this has never led to any experimentation for how one era's Link can be different to another. Link is always the same, kind, brave and male. Skyward Sword does, however, try something new because this time Link has a new key personality trait. He's stupid. Whether it's the way he would jangle the sword around like a lunatic or try to catch a passing cicada with his bug net held at right angles to the target in question, my link in Skyward Sword came off as thick as a brick and just as lithe. Of course, I recognise that this stems from my own use of the motion controls, which I found clunky, but the game designers must agree with me about Link's lack of mental aptitude. Why else would they include Fee as his companion? Fee has zero confidence that Link has even the remotest activity occurring in his brain. She sees upon it she sees it upon herself to remind him about the intricacies of the dousing ability about ten times, lest he forget how to properly use this incredibly rudimentary ability. Upon discovering a new area to explore, she leaps from the sword to inform him that this is a new area. You should explore it. But me, for me, her most annoying trait must be when the player gets down to three hearts. When you get low on health, Fee's reminder call begins to chime so that she can tell you what, that you are low on health. Problem is, you've already got a different chime in the game warning you that you're low on health in the first place. The result is this weird desynchronized stereo chiming that sounds like two doorbells having an argument. The fact that there is any sound warning for this at all is already kind of ludicrous considering that there is visible indication of your health displayed on screen at all times. Basically, what I'm saying with these points of criticism is that I would have preferred waggle controls and navi. That, that is an ugly thing to admit. <laughs> uh, Leah, anything to say on Fee, your uh, faithful companion? He's he's not wrong. Um, <laughs> no, I Fee, I, I didn't like Fee very much. Um, and I... I'm not sure whether it's just an extension of the Navi thing uh, that she she really does. Like I, this game in general kind of handholds you very very much, uh, and that is seen through Fee. It's also seen through the fact that by default you have this incredibly um, 
detailed HUD up at all times that shows you what every button on the remote does and what exactly you need to be doing uh, to push which button. And you can turn that off, but they never really make it super clear that you can turn that off. Like, they want you to have that on. You she can't could have fast told forward. Us. Yeah, exactly. She could have said. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised I found that ProHUD, by the way. Yes. ProHUD made, made, a, made, a, made a big difference to me. Yeah, and I I mean it's useful for a little while but if if they had made it a little bit more clear that you didn't have to have that. I I, I think this game kind of needed a yes I have played a Zelda game before option. And mm-hmm. I yeah. I really hope that they learn something about that particular facet in Breath of the Wild because I know that there are going to be new mechanics but by the same token you know that they're going to include some things that have been staples of the series and I really don't want there to be some companion character or some pop-ups explaining every single thing that you do every time that you do so it So when you when you turn on Breath of the Wild each time you start a new session yeah when you collect a crafting material <laughs> do you want it to explain that you've picked up that for the first time this session and then have it fade into a menu and show you that you've collected it with an animated icon yeah that'd be great I, if we could just keep that let's start writing letters to nintendo because if that's not in there it should be where's ryan we need to give him some notes <laughs> This is probably the, the biggest negative I can level at the game, mm-hmm. especially returning to it for a second time, because you yeah. really notice it uh, when you play through this game for a second time, is the constant condescension of this character. And and I, I'm really hmm. conflicted because Fee, I, I, I really like as a character design. I think it's really cool how she's she like She looks a, great. Yeah, she's she looks like... Yeah, a weird humanized master sword, mm-hmm. which is cool. Um, I kind of find her robot speech a little bit, you know, funny and silly, which is great. And and whenever she's kind of just part of the plot rather than the game, um, I find her a pleasant character. But mm. her her use as a gameplay function in this game is irritating it's so <laughs> annoying to have everything ex- i pick up a key and she goes oh that would be that would be useful for a locked door oh really i had no idea <laughs> what a key is i the thing is she's explaining stuff explaining stuff to a, the player that you don't even need to have played a zelda game before to get yeah. like you need to have been alive thing <laughs> in the world you understand yeah. what a key and and its relationship to a locked door is maybe um, maybe that is a thing maybe maybe they're just getting it that link is really stupid in this game like <laughs> yeah. that would make a lot more sense <laughs> yeah there are no locked doors in skyloft yeah uh, apparently not. that's the issue yeah, yeah. You're here on our They Breathe podcast talking to the the developers of that game and obviously that had, has a very different audience and it's a short, independently developed game but the developers in that have total faith in their audience to work out what's going on. They don't even tell them what buttons to press or where to go or what to do or anything like that. So I, I just feel like Nintendo had... They wanted this Zelda to sell probably a lot more copies than it did and including to a market that didn't usually play these sorts of games and and in doing so they ended up alienating a lot of their their core audience which I guess may have even contributed to the sometimes very dismissive attitude you get from core gamers towards the platform that it was on which I always think mm. is a shame because there's so many so many wonderful games on it but uh... it is kind of interesting that she is an AI or or has that kind of um that kind of lean to her uh character design because uh, when you think about it she's 
she's supposed to be kind of the spirit of this sword, and she's kind of directly related to the goddess and everything. So you'd almost expect mm-hmm. her to be like a nature spirit or a, some kind of incarnation of a fairy or, you know, a, an actual spirit rather than this kind of artificial guardian. I, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's uh, that that kind of um, is an interesting choice. And I don't think that's necessarily good or bad, but uh, it's maybe not what I would have expected had I been thinking about it. She's sort of like an alabaster C-3PO. That's how I Kind of, it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of the design, uh, like you guys, I, I, I actually quite like it, but uh, Matt Sharawara on his email said, aside from her irritating presence, I found Fee's design to be uncharacteristically poor comparatively to the other characters within the game. So she even managed to irritate in her looks for some people. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Sam Watt again says the game's opening is painfully slow and the Zelda series has only grown more protracted with each instalment. The games seem to be actively delaying my satisfaction and arbitrarily distracted me with time-wasting activities. The game forcibly held my hand throughout and never allowed me the freedom to immerse and solve problems for myself. Fee deserves her own catalogue of mismanaged design, the main issue being that she served only to shatter my immersion and repeatedly offload superfluous information. By the game's end, I was honestly glad to see her go, which may sound heartless, but the designer's attempt at injecting personality into Fee to pull at the heartstrings rang superficial and hollow. The few moments of sheer joy I had were those in which Fee would mercifully allow me to just play at my own pace and I could feel like I was playing any other Zelda game. I have to agree with uh, with part of that. I was, um, I, as I said, this this playthrough, I didn't actually make it completely to the end of the game, but I was watching uh, some videos of some of the ending and uh, particularly the ending cutscenes. And there's a sequence. One of the last things that happens is that Fee says this kind of, well, not tearful because I'm assuming she can't actually cry, but, uh, you know, what would be a tearful goodbye as she uh, she retracts and goes back to sleep in the sword. And I'm thinking yeah okay bye just peace can we can we can we go now like but, <laughs> i have things to do but that musical theme though that musical theme yeah yeah on a related matter i want to talk about the dousing uh, again i know it's something that some people take issue with we've talked a lot on previous cane rinse podcasts about the golden arrow that uh, I suppose that refers specifically back to Bioshock, but but other games as well. It's something that we've seen kind of more and more in modern games. And I say that Bioshock is now is going to be 10 years old later this year. But uh, oh. when you compare Skyward Sword, a 2011 game, to the original Legend of Zelda from 1986, which has zero signposting, basically, um, hmm. is, it, is the dousing a step too far? It's basically point to the quest until once you're in the actual right sub area sub area you might have to do a little puzzling to work out how to get to the place that the dousing signal is coming from mm. but until you get to the right sub area it is essentially a case of just follow the big purple circle and you will end up in the right place does this take the adventuring out of the legend of zelda is it ever actually well i mean i, I know there are a couple of places but do you is it possible to kind of work around the dowsing? I don't remember you don't how have to much. Use it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I mean that True. that I don't have as big a problem with because it's it's kind of there if you want it or, or if you get lost. Uh, it's it's more Fair along point. the lines of how Midna was used 
how she'd, you know, she'd always kind of be there for you to call on if you needed her, but she wasn't in your face all the time. I think I don't I don't really have a problem with that. Mm. Yeah, there's one moment where you have, to, or at least I have to personally use the dowsing is just mm -hmm. when I, I want to get rid of the first chime. So I yeah. press it once <laughs> and then I ignore it altogether. And it was really? a part, of okay. course. Uh, yeah, there's a part in the, uh, uh, which we'll probably talk about later, the, the sand sea, where you have to find the invisible, uh, invisible ship, where you absolutely yeah. have to use dowsing, otherwise yes. you'll never find it. But it works kind of as a as a interaction mechanic there, which is fine yeah. for mm. me. I was happy to use it again, playing it on a effectively on a time limit with a deadline. I was happy enough for it to be there. And overall, it, I wouldn't have said it spoiled my enjoyment of the game, but mm. it did make me think if I was playing this without a deadline and I wanted to explore in the style of an old Zelda game, I think the idea of not using it seems possibly in some areas like it might be too much of an ask though because there are some mm. real needle in a haystack quests aren't there so mm. especially some of the sub quests which are like go and find this thing which i dropped on the planet somewhere <laughs> if you if, yeah, if you didn't if you didn't use the dowsing for that you would have yeah. to there are a couple of things you might have stumbled across before and you might in a in a metroidvania style remember where you'd seen it and go back there and that would have been mm. a lot more satisfying than dowsing but playing it on a deadline or or just with an adult life with time limits and that sort of thing it's it, there's an argument that it's a blessing as well but yeah mixed feelings for me let's talk other characters we've already mentioned Groose. we'll hear more about that uh sam watt from the forum says skyward swords cutscenes have been been embellished greatly and while i never felt that voice acting in zelda is crucial the expressiveness of the characters feels hamstrung by a lack of vocal expression even in the most epic and colorful of cutscenes the silence is deafening despite these performance limitations girahim is such a wonderfully charismatic villain who manages to outperform the rest of the cast and is perhaps the best takeaway from the game so we know now that Breath of the Wild is going to be the first fully voice acted Zelda. So this was, mm. we know now probably that this was the last one or the last console Zelda, prob probably not handheld. Breath, uh, obviously, uh, Link Between Worlds is text boxes as well. But this may be the last big home Zelda that doesn't have voice acting in. It's something I was always quite pleased about. I like the little cameo noises, mm. uh, just characters who go, oh, and... Mm, whatever else even though it's absurd but i can understand why other people would want it certainly in my head characters like Groose and girahima all had a voice because mm -hmm. when i read they the characters automatically kind of take on voices even if i'm not directly acting them in my head it's like yeah. reading a book right you make the yeah, character exactly. voices in your yeah, head yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly um, Girahim's voice to me, and it, it took me a minute because, like, I could I could kind of hear him, but it, it took me a minute to pin down who it was I was actually thinking of. Um, so Girahim's voice to me, just the way that he acts and how overblown he is and kind of self-important. Um, he's uh, he he sounds to me like um, James, and not our James, but um, James <laughs> from uh, Team Rocket in the original Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's it that, that massively was, that was him to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I did actually, I, I did want to address that subject. Uh, I do have a slight issue with the fact that I think, I, I think, it again, it's one of these things where I, I'm almost loath to say it, but I think it might be somewhat a cultural thing. But the idea of this very uh, kind of camp, uh, mm -hmm. almost effeminate uh, guy, that is why he is weird and scary, because he's camp and effeminate. And look, he's wearing women's clothes now. And there's a there's there's certainly I think a lot of his 
villainy is drawn from his if uh, his effeminacy. If that's the I don't right know word. that it was. I don't know that he was. It was that he was being. For me, I don't think it was that he was being feminine. It was that he was being. Uh, I, I I don't even know how to how to really phrase it, but like the tongue thing, that's mm. not feminine. That's just creepy. No, no. That's that, yeah, like that. Yeah. I, I it just, it, it's not exactly that he was being inappropriate intentionally, but it just, it felt kind of almost on the edge of something that would not be appropriate in a kid's game. You know what I'm saying? Definitely. It, and and yeah. maybe that, maybe that ties into something that I'm culturally, that I'm culturally uh, internalizing, but I, I just, well, I, I, I didn't. That... I didn't. I, I really liked the character design, but some of mm. the way that he, just the way that he was written and his mannerisms were just—they made me uncomfortable. I believe that one of the the sort of telltale signs of a homosexual character in traditional Japanese animation is that they hold a rose between their teeth. <laughs> so Team Ro- James out of Team Rocket does that, uh, and uh. There, there have been various other examples. In there's a character in Guardian Heroes, the the treasure Sega Saturn game, who who does the same thing. And I don't think Girahim actually does that, but he does everything else, and it makes perfect perfect sense to me that the 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 suggestion is that he's kind of sexually uh, not what would be deemed you know quotes normal and that he's he's at, he's at least a pervert again in quotes vega of uh, of street fighter also kind mm-hmm. of uh, the claw yes. he kind of fits that uh, archetype right yeah absolutely but yeah I'm, I'm not sure if it's uh if that's completely a, a reference to homosexuality or homosexual men but it's often kind of an extremely vain man that they're trying to portray, uh, portray mm-hmm. in that way um and also the the voice acting what little there is uh for mm. Girahim is done by the same voice actor who voiced uh, the character Frieza in the Dragon Ball Z uh animes so oh. and who yeah who also kind of fits that archetype uh, it looks like he wears uh lipstick and uh yeah kind yeah. of yeah, kind of a drug sure. a dragonous character but when and, you're... and I'm, not, I'm not meaning to imply that the creators of this game are saying, you know, gay people are evil. It's not. It's not that <laughs> simple. It's not that straightforward. But but there's a suggestion to me that that this guy is, you know, perverse in some way. In quotes. I think this character kind of is treading the line for me, where mm. it, he's one action and one comment away from being kind of an offensive stereotype, mm. but he yeah. never quite. Yeah. He never quite goes over that line. Agreed. So yeah. for me, he still ends up being like a really charismatic and entertaining villain that I'm okay with being in this game. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it, it also felt like um, Nintendo were trying to create like their own version of Sephiroth for the uh, mm. for the Zelda uh, wow. franchise or some kind of like anime badass villain because Ganondorf mm. doesn't really fit that kind of archetype of the anime uh, badass villain he's much more of a western um, style baddie mm-hmm. whereas Girahim mm. is very much kind of styled after stuff like uh, you know characters out of Final Fantasy and, and other kind of shonen jump style animes but <laughs> yeah. I again like um, going back to Sam Sam as what uh, Sam Watts uh, comment. Um, I actually am terrified about the inclusion of voice acting in uh, Breath of the Wild <laughs> because yeah. 
I really because there is a charm to having just those emotive little sounds that yes. they make, like Girahim's <laughs> and stuff like that, and <laughs> every punctuating all the all the like. It, I I do think Skyward Sword, as silly and over the top as the dialogue is. It is actually quite fun to read, mm-hmm. and it injects yeah. all these people with uh, a vibrancy. Mm. And I worry that all of that is one bad vocal performance away from being completely ruined. And I can I can so easily imagine Groose and and mm. Girahim being stuck with a really, really too over-the-top performance that's just yep. chewing all the scenery in the room mm-hmm. and just taking away all that charm. Whereas Groose on his own, with his big over-the-top animations and the little silly noises he makes with that, you know, dumb mm. text that he says, <laughs> like, it's just the right level of charming. And, and I do yep. worry that the voice acting might strip that away. We should also probably, we probably haven't given enough praise over this series of podcasts to Nintendo's translation and localization team mm. because starting in the early 2000s, I'd say, and probably Paper Mario and things like that, the the effort and the the subtlety and the sensitivity with which they started to translate games into the English language and presumably other languages. Um, I don't know, Mikhail, you would know this. Do you take the, the English translation from the Japanese and then turn that into Dutch or do you translate it from the Japanese? I would, but uh, Zelda isn't localized into Dutch. But uh, that's, oh, okay. how, that's how it works for the other languages, uh, right, as sure, far as I sure. know. Yeah. But yeah, they do. I know. I don't know if it's as good in other parts of Europe, but when it comes to the English translations of Nintendo first party and second party mm-hmm. games for the last 15 years or so, they're often full of clever references and humour and subtle language uh, that you wouldn't have expected, you know, going back to the Final Fantasy days and the the old cliche about every JRPG having some <laughs> character who's kicking ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that stuff is pretty much gone in in and been replaced by uh, especially like the um the Mario and Luigi Luigi RPG games mm-hmm. those are full of some really humorous writing and and um Professor Layton and yeah the Paper Mario games as well and mm-hmm. stuff like that so yeah. uh, and Zelda also I think like the the text boxes in this game that we're talking about today are so so much more sophisticated even within their simple fairy tale story that can be understood by anyone than than games from the 90s. Now, I will say that um, for as much as he makes me uncomfortable in performance-wise, I do think that Girahim is a very well-written character. I, I think mm. that his, his lines and his dialogue are very effective. I'm not sure whether voice acting would have I'm not sure what voice acting would have done to that. Uh, I guess it would have depended. I'm not I'm not necessarily all that worried about the quality of the voice acting, but I I'm trying not to be prejudiced against it from the beginning, but I I'm my inclination is to say that I do prefer it this way without the voice acting as well. Matt Sharawara again via email says regarding other characters, the townsfolk along with Impa, Zelda, the pudgy Kikui tribe, the impressive water dragon and many others all looked engaging and interesting to me. I like that many of the peoples and designs here attempted to be new rather than simply rehash the rich past. I thought that this game had great humour. Smashing a tavern's chandelier despite direct instruction not to felt wonderfully cheeky as did the camera panning across to the Academy's restroom in a quest where I had just received a love letter to deliver. You will not under any circumstance 
circumstances ever allow it to be used as toilet paper, barked Corlin, the quest giver. Of course I did, the result being a scene in which a toilet paper receiving ghost was caressing a sleeping Corlin, smitten by the words he'd scrawled on her bog roll. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I quite enjoyed the the cast of incidental characters and things. I thought, yeah, the the, the Kikwis were, were kind of just about on the right side of over-cutesiness from my point of view and it was good to see the Gorons back and I kind of... There were some that I missed, but, uh, but he, like, I missed the, the sort of the more classic Zoras and things like that, but, uh, but overall it felt like another well-populated and colourful Zelda world to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one favourite of mine is the shopkeeper in the bazaar mm. who rushes mm-hmm. over to you excitedly, going, ah, <laughs> yeah, you've got to buy something, and then is really disappointed when you just His walk animation, away. yeah. Yeah, yeah it reminded me, it made me think of Stan, the ship salesman out of uh, Monkey Island, in fact, which is uh, always a good thing. Loft Wings. So this is a part of the game that I kind of assume is going to be more a part of the game than it actually turned out being. Um, so a lot of the... The the real overworld stuff in this game is flying about. You get your loft wing early on, probably earlier than you get uh, Epona in Ocarina of Time, for instance. And I was expecting something more along those lines where you would end up building some kind of relationship. I was even perhaps, and I know this game was developed, well, some of the same time as The Last Guardian. Oh, I know it's not the same <laughs> game. But I was kind of thinking, I wonder if there might be something where you have this whole kind of this interesting human-animal relationship where this bird was was your familiar and your steed and your your mount, and it really there's there's just nothing. It's just it's just a method of transport. <laughs> like, and- it's a very beautifully animated one, and personally, I enjoy the flapping of the wings and the mm. and the boosting through the air and the controls. But I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more kind of loft wing link. Yeah. relationship it's not only that that he's uh, a means of transport he's a means of transport in the hub world only yeah so yeah. you can't you can't even fly around above the forest or the desert or with no. him or anything like that yeah there, there is something endlessly satisfying about just running off the edge of uh skyloft and then falling and then whistling to get your bird and just i just i love that all the way through the game, um, uh, for, like you just falling off your bird to enter into the discrete zones and stuff like that. So for that, I'm happy that this exists, just because that's just a, a unique pleasure in of itself. But yeah, it, it does feel like they try to build a relationship with the bird early on when it's captured by Chris yeah, and his friends, and they put him in a. Uh, a little cage with, with planks of wood and stuff like that and you chop him free and you're like oh yeah it's my bird friend and we're going to be best friends for <laughs> five minutes yeah and, yeah that really is it yeah yeah oh well uh so on the the world in general uh, according to development each surface overworld has a specific theme. The forest overworld revolves around landforms altering gameplay. The volcano overworld focuses around changing the rules of gameplay. And the desert world is themed around the duality between past and present. So, yeah, this game kind of is known for having these three distinct areas that you return to two or three times. And I like them all. I like the way they develop. I like the way that 
the challenges are different each time. I, it's something I actually enjoy in games is to keep going back somewhere and learn more about somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it seems that that's not something that sits that well with everybody. Repetition and, la- and feeling like a lack of progress is being made. And on my personal level, while I know it would have been a massive cliche to have it, I was a little heartbroken that there's no snow and ice area in the game. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't... Um, I mean, it's... My my feelings on, for instance, the central dungeon in um, in Phantom Hourglass are well documented, um, but I didn't feel that way about even though you do repeat some of the same areas uh, in your quest to kind of get to the the different um, dungeons that branch off of each of these three areas, uh, you do repeat some of that. But I I definitely I didn't feel. The same way as I did repeating floors uh, in in that central dungeon, for instance, I I was okay with going about this different ways, even though some of it may have been the same. Uh, I liked I liked how they kind of evolved off of each other and and split off into these different areas. I, I thought mm-hmm. I thought that there was enough variance there that it, I didn't mind uh, repeating a step or two. And you you almost never have to repeat a puzzle over yeah. again to to no. reach, a, reach a, uh, yeah. the same spot. And there's of course the uh, the the bird statues that you can instantly mm-hmm. warp to, so you can skip whole areas. Um, yeah, and I, I got I got to think actually recently about this whole setup uh, because uh, comparing it to Ocarina of Time, it's almost like the sky you can compare it to uh, Hyrule Field. And if you then look at Ocarina of Time, there's the, the Goron domain, the Zora uh, exactly domain, that. Yeah. and and uh, the Gerudo domain, which are also three three areas, uh, but they're not by far not as rich and developed as these uh, these three areas are. Yeah, completely agree. And also these areas transform. There's a whole section later on, and I know it's not liked by everybody that we'll hear a couple of comments about it later, but there's an area where you've visited it umpteen times and then you go back and it's flooded with water and you get to swim through it and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So there is, there are, it's distinct. It's not just mm-hmm. going back to the same areas over and over again. And obviously you have new to- new tools. There is the whole Metroidvania element, if you want to call it that. So yeah, this was not, an element of the game that that bothered me at all. Uh, it was actually something that I embraced. Uh, another thing about the game world that I uh, loved from the beginning was that it kind of took me back to uh, a link to the past in ways and how every little rock, every little bush, every little item in the world seemed to have been placed there for a reason. And that just the high level of interactivity that everything had, it just, uh, yeah, it was like a breath of fresh air after, definitely after Twilight Princess for me. That's exactly why it didn't bother me. It's because each of these areas feels like an open-air temple, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. the lead-up to a temple feels like it's as well put together as the temples themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, and and I just... I liked the peeling back of the layers. Like Leon said, it's like it felt more like Metroid rather than retreading an area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're only ever in the old areas for 
with the exception of a boss that repeats uh, a few too many Ugh. times, um, you're only in familiar territory for about five or ten minutes at the most, and then you're on to new stuff and new characters, and like, and that's the other thing is that they're quick to introduce the new character who's going to represent your return to that area. So at first, it's going to be you know penguin tree people that introduce you to the forest area but later (laughs) on you're going to have a dragon who's going to you know talk you through this area it's i i think these areas for as much as they're criticized for you know you're backtracking i think there's a huge amount of variety here and some of our correspondents as we'll hear is also critical of not not the down on the ground bits but so much as the the flying through the air bits in that there's not actually a lot going on. Uh, Good Shrewsbury from the forum says, in nearly every Zelda game I've played, I love the feel of exploration and adventure the overworld exudes throughout the journey. In my opinion, the empty, bland sky world and disjointed earth lands never come close to that special feeling which immerses and transports me into those other Zelda game worlds. I loved Skyloft and its populace, but I never felt like I got to see where other denizens of this world call home, with the possible exception of the Perella. This less lived-in feel was just another thing that kept my affection for this game at arm's length. Craig, also from the forum, says the sky was a big problem for me. I understand it was meant to convey a vast land, but because there were so few places to go and few little threats, it was just dull. It should have felt like you were soaring with infinite freedom, but uh, but because below you there was nothing to see but clouds, it didn't feel particularly high or fast. Interesting point there. And Andrew Brown, regular correspondent from the forum, says Skyward Swords feels like a shallow, half-finished world. Rather than an overworld like past polygonal Zeldas have featured, each area is essentially a dungeon filled with puzzles and unique combat scenarios. This makes an initial visit to an area feel interesting and engaging and even allows for some great surprises. The first time I played, I didn't realise the Sandship was a dungeon until I was halfway done with it. But outdoor areas are still expected to pull duty as an overworld so when I return to them later in the plot it feels like wandering the halls of a dungeon whose puzzles I've already solved there's also an unfortunate amount of padding the forced return to Skyview Temple for Sacred Water is surpassed only by the Song of the Hero sequence in Unnecessary Filler on par with gathering the Triforce fragments in The Wind Waker Doubtless, all this filler and retreading is due to storage issues of the Wii optical disc, all that wonderful technology, plus the fully orchestrated soundtrack, plus the lush character models must push the Wii to its limit. It's interesting how things can be perceived in such different ways, because I actually really like yeah. returning to Skyview Temple, because it's something I'd never did in a Zelda game, return to a previously finished temple and do yeah. something else in there. Yep, absolutely. Uh, all experiences are valid and unique yeah so let's look uh, in, in more detail at the audio so for the first time in the series the all of the music was performed using a live orchestra rather than synthesized instruments there was an orchestrated piece on twilight princess but it was only an attract mode piece or a title theme or something I, I forget but the in-game music was synthesized because they were concerned about the the ability to you know mix it on the fly to to respond to what the player's doing here uh, i believe this was at miyamoto's insistence that this was going to be the first fully orchestrated game Uh, famously somebody spotted very early after it was revealed that the main theme the ballad of the goddess is zelda's lullaby backwards Hmm. appropriately enough Hmm. 
and there are videos out there of that reversed and it is absolutely correct and spot on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I loved a lot of the music in this game. I missed what I felt like, even though I've been critical when we talked about previous elders about some of the slightly less than convincing MIDI instrumentation or farty trombones or whatever it is, I did miss the the possibility for the music to be that bit more dynamic and reactive. But the moments where you take to the sky and the orchestra kicks in and the the real organic human sounding instruments on some of the pieces. I love the desert piece in this game. Mm. I think it was just magnificent. Um, and the sensitive yeah, some... piece as well. Yeah, there's there's some fantastic themes, and yeah. I think it's a yeah it's a great soundtrack, well worth owning, tracking down. Um, there is actually one uh, bit where the music is dynamic with uh, the time shift stones when you walk in and yes. out of the f- the future and the past bits. The, the music That's changes dynamically. I really like that. Yeah, so it it gets an extra uh, extra kind of beat to it when it's when you're back in time to reflect the fact that the factory and the the robots are still working. So it gets this yeah. kind of rhythmic like. Uh, workman type noises yeah that's really clever and cool mm-hmm. i like some of the um hearing some of the instrumentation on the um on some of the pieces that kind of come back and particularly i'm thinking of uh zelda's lullaby um it's really nice to hear some of these things where if you had only played the games and not actually listened to any of the music outside of those games, and this is the first time that you're hearing them that way, that you're hearing them fully orchestrated. And yeah. it's it's really beautiful uh, to, to hear that, uh, I, I think. I, it's like they're finally being fully realized almost. Josh, I know you're a big fan of the soundtrack, so please wax lyrical. This this might be my favourite soundtrack. Mm. Um, I've been listening to, um, when I say favourite soundtrack, I mean of the series, not um, <laughs> of everything. Um, yeah, I just be, I've been listening to the music a lot um, in the weeks uh, preceding this recording, and I just I I came away feeling like every single major theme in this game is memorable and and really well put together like Groose's theme i know i keep going on about Groose, but i like <laughs> that right. guy so much um <laughs> Groose's theme is so funny and and <laughs> it's just such a good representation of that character and his personality but what's even better is that there are variants of it depending on how he's feeling in that moment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So when he's feeling all confident and blustery, like it's triumphant and and magnificent, and when Zelda's, you know, put put him in his place and embarrassed him, he'll go all silly and some of the notes will be out of tune deliberately. It's just, uh, I, I really do think this is a phenomenal piece of work um the romance theme as well that that theme that plays between link and and zelda whenever they're together is just a great piece of emotional music fee's theme as much as we you know discussed how irritating she can be i love her theme as well yeah the theme is beautiful yeah, and and it's the only thing really providing emotion in her final <laughs> farewell because you don't feel it genuinely. Um, yeah, I just yeah, this is I, I know I'm getting into just pure superlatives here, <laughs> but I really do think this this soundtrack is a real real winner and a, a, just a, one of the highlights of the entire series for me. 
Sean S. Thomas from the forum says, The score is truly amazing. The series rarely lets us down in this respect, but this one has real range from epic to whimsical. So no complaints that I could find. Next topic is a big one. The controls. The locomotion, the combat, it's all kind of rolled into one for the most part. Uh, I think it's fair to say that many of the the fundaments are there from previous 3D Zeldas. The, the, the auto-jumping and so on and so forth and the targeting we're now very familiar with from... Uh, even if people had only played Twilight Princess on the Wii at this point, it, it would have all made sense. Although, as we'll hear from Andrew, the targeting is based on motion rather than the infrared sensor which makes things slightly different in fact let's hear from andrew now andrew brown says the first boss girahim is a stellar example of wii motion plus in action he is able to read the player's input and can easily block sword swings literally yanking the sword from link's hand to defeat him you have to telegraph an attack coming from one direction but really swing from another at the last minute it's a brilliant moment effectively communicating to the player that from here on out twilight princess style waggling won't be enough to get by. Skyward Sword takes the somewhat mindless and rudimentary combat of past Zelda games and makes it the core of the entire experience, transforming scripted swings, swipes and stabs into a technical and nuanced parlay of combat. Success requires patience and precision. It's a totally unique experience and it's all due to Wii Motion Plus. The downside is all of this may be very understandably outside the skill level of many players. I am more critical of Wii Motion Plus integration in other areas. Skyward Sword uses it for aiming instead of the infrared sensor. This creates problems. Whenever I equip an item, the direction my remote is facing becomes the centre, creating inconsistent aiming with every use of an item, necessitating constant readjustment. Contrast with Twilight Princess or Link's crossbow training where the infrared sensor serves as the centre, creating a much more consistent feel every time I use an item. Using Motion Plus to select menu items creates similar issues. The Nadir is playing the goddess harp, which feels more like conducting than playing a harp. I wonder why we didn't see the return of the Wind Waker instead, especially with how the rest of the game revels in referencing past series titles. I'm disappointed that Breath of the Wild returns to a traditional polygonal Zelda control scheme as I hoped it would be a chance to experience a refined Wii Motion Plus based experience in a fully featured game world. I accept that Skyward Sword will probably be regarded as a failure by most and a curiosity by few, but I have admiration for it. Yeah, so I really didn't have any issues with the uh, Motion Plus controls. In fact, I found them to be pretty much uh, what they were aiming for, I believe. Uh, I, I really, uh, as as Andrew was saying here, I, I really do like the concept of the... Um, the enemies and in particular in the boss fights and some of the larger enemies who you do need to swing in the correct direction. And if you do what they're telling you to do in, in this particular instance, then it, it works pretty well. Um, mm. it, it would have been very easy to have this be a requirement and then not really carry through with it uh, to, you know, say, yes, you have to do this diagonal slash and then have it be extremely difficult or um, or finicky to get to that particular diagonal slash that they're looking for. But from what I experienced, personally, I felt that it carried through as it should. So I, when I did what I thought should be that diagonal slash, 
it it happened, you know. So um, I, I I thought that it was um, that it was implemented extremely well that way, uh, particularly when I consider that I did have a few issues playing um, Twilight Princess. Uh, they weren't game breaking by any stretch, um, and we spoke about those in that issue. But uh, this is very much a refinement of that, uh, and I, I thought that it worked very well. It it also leads into what I love about uh, the controls is that there's some sort of you know. You, normally, when you learn a learn a, an action game, you you learn the control scheme, the buttons, the combat system, and um, Twilight Pri- or Twilight Princess, sorry, Skyward Sword uh, presents a sort of a unique physical learning uh, curve with the controls. Because mm-hmm. when I started out, I had so much trouble with the Boko Blins and trying to mm-hmm. circumvent their defenses, and um, Gira him uh, really set me straight in uh, in my first uh, fight against him. And that actually happened all over again when I uh, did my uh, recent second play through uh, in hero mode, no less, which made it all the more all the more tense. And uh, any mistake was more costly that way. But the mm. the, the what I'm talking about the uh, physical learning curve in the game is uh, the part where you start to learn how you need to make your movements very measured and controlled instead of you know something inside me just wants to uh to slash and hack uh, with with wild force and you know i feel like the stronger i uh strike at an enemy the more damage i will do which is nonsense of course in the game but as soon as you just uh start to become more measured in your controls and more deliberate in your movement uh you will have very little uh, problems and it's actually the flailing and the wild gesturing that will throw the controls out of whack and need uh, and causes the uh, need for recalibration or or recentering. Completely agree. The more I played it, the more I enjoyed the control method mm. to the point where later in the game I was thinking it will be almost a shame to go back to more standard controls for Breath of the Wild. I'm not saying I'd want to play every video game with a sword or a bow and arrow in the same way. I don't think every game needs to be the same, but it it does... I, I find it slightly a shame when I know that some people just are very resistant to using your different muscles to actually play a game because sometimes the rewards of learning a different control method... I'm also talking about things like plastic guitars and rhythm action games... Mm. Uh, the actual the the feeling of euphoria that you can get if you go down that road. I certainly got huge amounts of satisfaction from taking things out by swinging my Wii remote and and putting all the movements together that I wouldn't have just got from from pressing the buttons. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a very experienced and happy button presser a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. It makes me it's, it's made me sad before when I've read people saying I really wanted to play Mario Galaxy, but I but but I just didn't want to play a game with a Wii remote and a nunchuck. And it's like I just don't understand <laughs> i do understand i do understand some people just want to sit down and play with a sta- with a controller that they're used to yeah. with a control method that's a variation of something else but for me playing games like super mario galaxy and which obviously isn't wii motion plus but uses the the wii, wii remote and nunchuck in a different way mm. and games like this reminds me that there are rewards to be had and and uh and experiences to be had from games that aren't exactly the normal ones and it might require a little bit more effort at the front end but you'll get some something new and exciting out at the far end it might take a few hours to get used to it and maybe that's not what you want to do but i think i think the inclusion is is justified here i think we've all probably had 
some kind of negative experience with motion controls because the Wii had a lot of games and some mm-hmm. of them used that quite well and some of them didn't use it at all and some of them used yeah. it very poorly. So, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can understand the reticence on one level, um, but on another, I mean, this is Nintendo. If anybody's going to use it correctly, it's going to be them. Uh, and, yeah, yeah I, I was I was pleased with the outcome, but I... I, I can see, I, I do agree that it's kind of a shame uh, if people just dismiss it outright because of that, uh, but I can I can kind of see where they're coming from. Anything to do with the combat, I, I very much agree with everything you guys just said. I, like, I found the sword combat really fun and satisfying, especially its implementation against some of the boss battles mm-hmm. in the game. I'm thinking about the ancient uh, automaton. Yeah. Um, I think that's yeah. a really fantastic combat set piece um, Mm. in this game but I I would say there are some little things uh, where the motion controls uh, let the game down a little bit so for example balancing on ropes um, at at the best of times I don't like it when games introduce like a mini thing you have to do when you're going across ropes but having to kind of use the Wiimote to balance Link was slightly irritating I'm not a huge fan of yeah. the motion swimming either, um, I, which is weird because I'm fine with uh, you know using the uh, motion controls for my loft wing. It's very much but, the same, yeah. And the beta, yeah, but in my head because it's flying, hmm. having that kind of control scheme makes sense. Is this your Whereas aquaphobia this... kicking in again, Josh? Just yeah, it's afraid of, probably afraid yeah, of drowning. Afraid aren't of you? water drowning. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know what I can't really justify it. But I, I just I feel I felt like there was a disconnect there with the motion controls and the swimming, and the, the just I, I know you mentioned liking uh, swinging the nunchuck to get the shield up. Yeah, but I really I would have preferred just being able to hold down a button to get the shield up like in previous Zelda games. Mm-hmm. I think I got too used to the fact that uh, lock on and get your shield up has been the same action in previous Zelda games. That, sure. that convenience being taken away was uh, a bit irritating. But yeah, overall, I do agree with you. I just think there are little little bits of motion control here and there that let it down. And about the uh, the sword play, still, it, it re- it's really telling of uh, when when yeah how much trouble you, you have in the beginning with uh, with uh, Boko Blins and tiny enemies and then in the uh, the ending sequence where you rush down uh, the sealed sealed grounds and there is almost dynasty warriors like uh, yeah. swarms of Boko Blins Crazy rushing enough. you and you just hack them down you know, like by, by by the dozens hugely uh, satisfying it's uh it it really feels like you've be, you've mastered your sword of course you're holding the master sword as well so it's it's cheating in a way because enemies will go down with one hit but yeah yeah it just it it feels like you've become become really adept at sword play mm-hmm. probably more than any other zelda game before it yeah i i got a real sense of the power up every time the sword was powered up it's not Whereas it, in some earlier Zelda games, actually getting your sword powered up was a side quest unto itself. In this game, it's part of the story, yeah. Yeah. The, the central line. And I even felt like it, it made all the difference in the final boss battle, which obviously it's arbitrary in a way, because if they'd given the end boss the same amount of hits, it doesn't matter how pow- powerful your sword is. Mm-hmm. But I felt like... Most of the bosses in this, uh, in this game were, I, I thought, 
quite easy to beat and but they were always fun we've moved organically onto the bosses <laughs> uh and the final boss so let's talk about them uh, good Shrewsbury didn't was not as much of a fan as I from the forum says most of the bosses were relative to Zelda games unimaginative I enjoyed the fights with Scaldera and the total badass demise however a few of them felt either like mini bosses rehashed designs from prior titles or just sort of dull you fight the imprisoned and Girahim twice the imprisoned three times actually I think mm-hmm. Moldorak twice and the Levias Bylasite fight was epic but super easy and over in a flash the Tentalus fight was mechanically cool but its design looked like something that belonged in a Mario game mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I'm more positive than good Shrewsbury I agree that some things felt familiar I've just played every Zelda game in the space of a year and a half and <laughs> you know there's perhaps only so much you can do in terms of big monsters and weak spots and things like that mm-hmm. I, they not only felt familiar because of Zelda games but because of video game bosses we see certain things time and time again but actually that's where for me the the Wii Motion control perhaps added something gave it something extra because I was literally using different methods to take these things down and as usual from the first party big console Zelda games the actual animation and and so on that's on display is you know Top, mm-hmm. top notch, really. Yeah, okay. So I enjoyed most of the bosses, um, but yeah, that the Imprisoned was one that I did not enjoy. I did not like how that played out, and I really didn't like that you have to go through it three times. Uh, I didn't mind coming back to Girahim because I felt like there were there were reasons to come back to him. He's kind of the, and as it turns out, you know, the imprisoned is kind of the big bad at the end, but you don't know that Mm -hmm. you only know that it's this big black blobby thing with a bunch of scales. (laughs) That is, you have to stop from climbing up a ramp three times. And it just, I don't know. It, it felt slow and plodding the, the battles that is not necessarily the monster, although, uh, but it, I, I think that, maybe once would have been enough uh, or if you had found some way or if they rather had found some way to feel like that battle was evolving more than it did uh, when you when you do have to come back to it or if there were a way to kind of make it feel more important as opposed to a chore that you just kind of have to help well, go hammer in that stake yeah. again get him back down because he's out again well why does it I, I just i suppose i didn't feel that it did a very good job of conveying why that was so important uh up until the very end and maybe that was just me missing things but i it just it felt like a chore i, I didn't enjoy the actual mechanics yeah. of the of the fight um and it ended up great i i love the final boss fight and i really did like um like the both the aesthetics and the mechanics in that final boss fight but leading Mm -hmm. up to it just no the imprisoned for me felt like a great idea i like the idea of this uh evil creature that keeps trying to escape Mm -hmm. but you barely manage to bash it back into the ground but the the iterations on that first encounter, the second one and the third one, it feels like the mechanics they add just make it more irritating to <laughs> yeah. dispatch rather than more mechanically interesting mm-hmm. to dispatch. Mm-hmm. Just uh, some of its attacks and, and, and the way it 
um, interact with the player. It just if it was just as Leah said, it was just a chore. It wasn't it wasn't interesting. It was just kind of boring. It wasn't particularly hard. It it's just not a very well designed boss, and it's a shame because I think this game um, has a plethora of really entertaining bosses. Um, I already mentioned the automaton. I think that's probably my favorite yeah. in the game. Coloxus. Yeah, and and I think um, the final the final boss I think rarely is one is actually a you know a great example of a final boss. Usually, this ends up being the thing we complain about, but <laughs> I think this was a strong one. Yeah, mm. um, yeah, it's yeah, really is a shame about the imprisoned. Yeah, it's the thing is unlike Leah, I did feel like to me it came across as this is this thing is a, a legitimate threat. Because you see him in the beginning, at the, it's probably, he's probably he's shown in the very first cutscene of the game, and uh, Granny Granny Impa spoilers <laughs> uh, also keeps on hammering that this thing must not allow to be escaped uh, all the time, like it, it will uh, destroy the world. Um, the only problem is that it doesn't feel he doesn't feel very dangerous when you're fighting him. He doesn't he doesn't even pay you much mind. Uh, you can just uh, happily uh, wail on its uh, silly little silly big toes uh, yeah there's just something about this design in full that doesn't make him very threatening and he's more of a threat uh, to to the temple and reaching uh, uh, and reaching it than a threat to you as the player so I don't know he, he doesn't f- uh, fulfill his uh, his promise of being uh, something really threatening Mm. I I got to say I I didn't have a major problem with the imprisoned like I seemed to be in a very small minority <laughs> I didn't love it I found the bits where he got knocked out where, where you'd get knocked over between his foot stomps a little annoying but mm. overall I fought him three times I got game over once because I didn't quite understand one of the mechanics on the final fight I can't remember exactly what I did or I just badly timed something but as Josh said they weren't overly difficult so yeah I I I quite enjoyed hammering him with the cannonballs from above and then landing on his head and smashing the thing back into his face and, and all that. Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. but Yeah, uh, yeah for I, me too. I, but mm, but mm. maybe it just it felt like some missed potential there. They could have done something more with it. Yeah, Jobo Bonobo agrees with the negative appraisal of the imprisoned. The imprisoned was just a boring boss that was not helped that you had to fight it multiple times. Uh, And another section that repeats are the Silent Realms, which are are trials very specific in nature, a mini-game, if you will, or or a sub-segment. And Jobo Bonobo continues, However, what made me quit were the Silent Realms, entering the first realm and going through that agonising trial with collecting the sacred tears and avoiding the Guardians was easily one of my least fun Zelda moments ever. It was needlessly stressful, and the fact that you have to start all over if caught just made it a tedious chore. When I realised I would have to do these horrible bits again, and again to unlock more parts of the game world I just said hell no to all that and traded it back to the shop and Matt Sharawara on his email says the challenges in the Silent Realm made for some nice tense moments and I found that the boss and dungeons to be very enjoyable and shiny looking uh, and refers back to the imprisoned that miserable slog that is having to fight the imprisoned cannot be <laughs> overlooked the battle is awful and bafflingly repeated three times throughout the adventure even more if you want to complete the optional boss rush for the Hylian shield uh, that was one quest I didn't do because the final best shield that you can get didn't deteriorate for me at all anyway. Uh, I gave up trying to do that because seeing the imprisoned over and over again was one of those terrible encounters that managed to be both frustrating to engage with and unfulfilling upon completion. So yeah, pretty damning there. Moving right along, we should talk about the 
actual puzzles in the dungeons or temples uh, in this game. There aren't. It hasn't got the biggest number. It's got way fewer actual dungeons or temple levels than, say, Twilight Princess, I think. Mm-hmm. For me, they were all, I think, excellent. I mm-hmm. think they're consistently marvellous. None of them were overly taxing. I would say that people who want more of a cerebral workout from their Zelda puzzling may find these a little dissatisfying. But for me, they struck the right level of feeling like I was being smart while making progress. And there was something new and clever in every dungeon. They subscribed to the the cliched format of get the new item, use the new item, mm-hmm. kill the boss with the new item pretty much uniformly. But without going into the nitty-gritty and specifics of every one, because there, there are at least seven or eight to talk about, there were some there were some neat ideas in every single place. And, yeah, I had, I had a great time. Probably my if I had to pick a single element, whereas I said about Spirit Tracks, I would have just liked to play the Temples. I enjoyed playing most of this game, but the Temples, again, probably stood out as the thing that gave me the most pleasure. Mm. So for me, everything in Lanaru... Uh, desert was a highlight in terms of the temples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lanaru mining facility, where they slowly introduce that uh, time manipulation uh, feature that becomes commonplace throughout that desert yeah. area. I just I love the way you transform um, that location from this dusty ruin to this futuristic robot factory with all these you know crazy bmos creatures and and stuff like that it's it's i think it's when the game takes advantage of its um you know aesthetic the most is during those sequences um and also the kind of lead up to the sand ship as well when you're on the boat with the uh device that shifts time and you're slowly seeing the desert turn into ocean in front of you that's such a such a moment is that yeah 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 and and i love all of that time manipulation stuff but i think the absolute highlight in terms of uh, temple design for me is the rubik's cube style temple at the very end Mm -hmm. in skykeep um it's yeah i just think that's such a I, it's one of those ideas that you almost can't believe Zelda hasn't done before yeah. <laughs> mm. of kind of having the rooms kind of shift and change and you have to kind of align them together in the correct order in order to progress. It's such a, a clever idea. And yeah, none of these are particularly taxing, but they're all just really fun. The only thing I would say about the the final temple is that you'd kind of given it the big build up, Josh, and so I was expecting something that, had perhaps more to it in a way like I enjoyed it I thought it was cool when I puzzled my way through it but actually you you say Rubik's Cube there well if it had been a three by three block it would have been astonishingly complex but possibly either the best or the worst Zelda Zelda (laughs) experience of all time but actually it's just a it's just a grid uh, it's a sliding tile puzzle and in fact depending on where you are you can't there are certain tiles which you simply cannot move and that and that actually keeps it quite at the simple end of those things as it goes so so it's not yeah it's not what it could have been and and i mean that both positively and negatively my favorite temple uh design wise aesthetically was the ancient cistern uh which Mm. has a very 
very uh, Eastern Buddhist uh, theme to it, and this it's I just feel like it's loaded with symbolism because it's this kind of thing where you have to sink to the depths of he- hell before you can uh, ever hope to reach the heavens uh, or the or the sun. Uh, the way you have to yeah go down uh, in, into this hellish area with the, the zombie bokoblins and you work the the kind of the Buddha statue up till it reaches the the sun or the heaven part and there's even a, a bit in it that's uh, heavily in reference of a, a Japanese folkloristic story a Buddhist story where uh, a sinner is trying to uh, escape hell or is uh, being led to escape hell by granted a chance by Buddha uh, because there's one good deed he did in his life which was not to step on a, uh, on a spider and to kill it mm-hmm. so Buddha lets, uh, leads down uh, a spider threat down the pit uh, which he climbs on uh, but eventually he's uh, being dragged back by all the other sinners that try to hang by the same uh, spider threat uh, while climbing up and trying right. to escape as well mm-hmm. um, uh, I found, yeah, I just found that whole temple incredibly cool. Uh, just the only thing that ruined this was the stone on uh, on top of it, spelling out the rest of the puzzle for you with this, where you had to raise and lower the statue. As regards to the items that you get in the dungeons, we've obviously got some familiar ones with obvious uses, bombs and nets and so on and so forth. Uh, some which sort of make returns or in remixed form, such as the digging mitts and mm-hmm. the... Uh, I mean, th- those were... Uh, uh, from which which one did we see those first Minish in our cap. Minish cap yeah similarly yeah. the gust the gust bellows so it makes sense that this was Fujibayashi mm. uh, bringing back some of his his items from previous games uh, yeah. and the beetle is perhaps the the standout for me adding a whole new kind of mechanic something that we'd never really seen before which is I suppose we'd seen it in the the DS games in a sense, sending things off around the room, like with the the ability to draw the path of the boomerang. But here you are actually controlling in third person a mechanical device and exploring tunnels that you couldn't get to on foot, which I thought was uh, a lot of fun and opened up Mm. some interesting Mm -hmm. possibilities. Yeah, and the beetle also can be used in so many ways. Uh, the, yeah. the first time I discovered I could pick up a beehive and drop it on some Bokoblin's head. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and obviously that's not something – that was something that um, Kojima did in, in Metal Gear Solid 3, but not with a not with a remote flying beetle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you kind of see the start of that with, like, the, um, uh, the bomb chews, but you can't – control them quite like you can the beetle you don't have that direct control over them so i i I thought that was a cool addition as well and actually mentioning the bombs we have a negative three-word review about bomb bowling later but i thought bomb bowling was brilliant yeah like we we motion plus the bowling of bombs and the fact that you could put spin on it like you were playing wii sports and stuff (laughs) i just thought was was genius I, i actually thought it was underused but there are a couple of puzzles where you had to do a proper like curve shot around a couple of surfaces to get it to land in a in a pot and whatever that was mm-hmm. i just thought that was excellent stuff yeah uh, joshi hashimitsu from the forum says it's a game in which i marveled at the level design the fact that you revisit areas didn't bother me so much because of how the levels were laid out and by the time you revisit them you have new items at your disposal to traverse different sections it just came across as well thought out there's an efficiency to it that doesn't feel compromised Time is running on. I just want to talk a little bit about side quests because although the world may be sparse in some ways, I, I would agree with that, there are things to do, particularly in and around Skyloft, the town. 
I became quite fond of some of its residents, but I would agree with what Sam Watt here is about to say from the forum that perhaps there isn't the same level of engagement as in one of the key games in the series. Sam says, In Majora's Mask, I genuinely cared for the individuals of Clocktown and their personal quests carried emotional weight. In Skyward Sword, however, I felt actively disgruntled and apathetic to their woes, crying babies, dusty <laughs> homes and downright stupidly mislaid crystal balls to name but a few. <laughs> so I didn't feel quite as... Uh, What's the word? Misanthropic, <laughs> as, as Sam. But uh, but I, I see what he's getting at. But I actually quite liked the sort of the mundanity of these domestic quests in the midst of saving the world. It lent a bit of levity and humour. Hmm. And and I, I engaged with a lot of the quests. I ended up with the vast majority of the heart pieces in this game and other items because I kept finding myself just wanting to do stuff, uh, play extra things. Did you get all the gratitude crystals? Not all, no. I did not turn Batro into a human, so I don't know what happens there. Is it cool? Yeah, it's really cool. He's he basically looks almost exactly the same, only with a human uh, pale skin tone. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> and and he's just walking around, walking around Skyloft, uh, standing on a bridge, and trying to talk to people. <laughs> he's looking all happy, like he's uh, he's human now, even though he still looks like a monster. That's a cool scene when you first meet him. It acts like it's going to be a boss fight, but it yeah. turns out that he's just a just a guy. Yeah, my, that my was kids cool. found that part very uh, very creepy. The lead up, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet, yeah. I tend to engage a lot with the side quests in Zelda games, um, and I, I did a fair amount in this one, but I I didn't find it as memorable um, or or really get into them as much as I did uh, with some of the others. Uh, I didn't dislike them. I, I, I didn't quite um, I didn't quite hate the residents, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I guess I don't have particularly strong feelings for them. I, I they were there, they were fine, uh, but maybe not not as necessary as some of the others felt. In that case, I just want to talk uh, briefly about the the sort of crafting element, which it, mm. it does look like it's going to be massively expanded upon, uh, but it's something we hadn't really seen in this form before in a Zelda game, mm -hmm. and I certainly engaged with it. I, I, I ended up on the in the final fight with the, with the best bow and the best sword and, and uh, the best beetle towards the end game but i also had a big old stock of plus plus potions which i didn't need but i i got kind of into catching bugs when you know where they spawn and you got the big net it was quite satisfying just to go up to bugs and whoosh them all into your net especially if you knock down a, a hornet hive and yeah i i found that the 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 sort of the um the barriers for upgrading things were just about they felt just right so that they were it was it only ever took like one little journey there was very little grinding or anything like that to have the the bits that you need to give yourself the best chance of survival and and to, to give yourself the best equipment so i did pretty much all of that other than that boss rush quest to get the hylian shield because it was completely unnecessary i remember upgrading everything on my first play playthrough and not having much trouble uh the hero mode playthrough i wasted a lot of money on a lot of rupees on uh on potions because uh, of there's course. you you yeah. get the you uh, you receive double the damage, and there are no uh, hearts spawning out of pots or anything uh, in the world. So of course. The, the only way you can regain health is uh, lay down in the bed somewhere, sit down on a stool, or uh, drink a potion. And usually you're in an area where you there are no beds or stools around, so yeah. you have to mm -hmm. yeah you have to drink your potions and and backtrack to Skyloft to to buy new potions again. 
It happened a lot mm. to me as well. Yeah. Would you say that added to the fun of the game or not? Uh, in a way, it, it kind of made it more like a survival game and it, yeah. uh, intense in the sense that you really are actively not trying to get hit by anything because it's mm. it's costly. So it makes made the, the fights and the battles more intense. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when flukish stuff happened, it also made it more rage-inducing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> when you get knocked into something by something else yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And this is also a game that has the sort of equivalent of, of Paper Mario badges, which give you perks. So you can yeah. have more more rupees or more hearts appear in the world, carry yeah. them in your item sack, which is another thing that you can upgrade. And it, there, there are a lot more elements that I suppose you would associate with more classically RPG type games. And uh, But for me, again, it, it kept the right level of Zelda-ness without mm. going too far down the the other, you know, the JRPG or even the Western RPG route. And it'll be really interesting to see if they manage to maintain this balance in, in Breath of the Wild or yeah. not, not the balance necessarily, but as long as it's fun. I don't mind if they change things as long as I still find it enjoyable kind of thing. Because I don't think Zelda's ever been about grinding apart from the odd exception where you've needed a certain amount of rupees to get a certain item or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Time's getting ahead. I've got a few more comments from the forum and email overall feelings on the game. From our correspondence, Jobo Bonobo says, Skyward Sword is the only 3D Zelda game that I have not completed and I feel very little compulsion to ever return to it. First, the stuff I liked, it looked lovely, great music, Groose was always entertaining and the bosses were fun to fight for the most part, particularly Koloktos. As for what I did not like, the motion controls never fully gelled with me. Having a moblin block my attack and then attack me while producing that loathsome cackle they do made me (laughs) dread battling. The game takes forever to get going and even opening a dungeon has you do a ridiculous amount of fetch quests beforehand that my enthusiasm for getting into the dungeon was drained out of me. I wanted to like it, I really did, but it was not meant to be. Sam Watt concludes his forum post with nearly every single positive element in this game. There is at least one accompanying issue that spoils it. Skyward Sword did have some lovely moments and gave me some genuinely good memories. However, there were just too many missed opportunities and bad design decisions peppered throughout. Having experienced the game three times, the last being a side passenger, the game has barely impressed upon me at all and was disappointingly irritating to play. I really wanted to like this game, but honestly, I only completed Skyward Sword out of a sense of duty. Matt Sharawara via email says, Overall, Skyward Sword feels like a very uneven entry into the series, which, given the reputation of its siblings, is a rough spot to be in. The highs, such as traversing the ancient cistern and toppling its boss, Koloktos, make the experience worth it overall. But the low points are as low as I can remember when playing Zelda and hopefully represent just a minor dip for the series, not the beginning of a decline. David Parkinson, also via email, That's to podcast at cadenrince.com. Skyward Sword was in fact my first ever Zelda game. I finally picked up a copy of Skyward Sword back in 2014 and played it with my girlfriend over about three months until we completed the game. And despite the occasional Wiimote controller issue, I absolutely loved every second of it. It evoked the same feelings and nostalgia from my favourite childhood gaming memories and made me feel like a little kid again. This epic adventure, the discovery, the cinematic directing style the puzzles the floating island hub world the characters the music i just love it all and consider it to be among my all-time favorite games hooray for david parkinson's positive (laughs) experience and one more sean s thomas 
perhaps offering a little balance in some ways. I've had two very different experiences with Skyward Sword. My first playthrough left me somewhat underwhelmed. The game mechanics felt antiquated and returning to the same few areas grew tiresome. The final few hours of the quest were unnecessary padding, but overall I really missed a sense of scale within the game. Skyloft hinted at a huge kingdom underneath, but I felt robbed of a huge vista or mountain scene opening up in front of Link. I then decided to replay it on hero mode several years later, which until you pick up a heart medal makes it a stiff challenge and more methodical quest. And second time around, I fell in love with it. I still had a few annoyances that seemed more a case of Nintendo not noticing what others were up to than game-breaking faults, but things such as items recurringly telling you what they are every time you collect them, your inability to skydive unless it's in certain precise places, fee signposting your adventure far too much, rupees largely being redundant and a lack of side quests outside of Skyloft all felt antiquated given what was releasing on other formats at the time. But outside of those irritations I found a lot to love. Returning to the three main environments didn't frustrate me like it did the first time around as they changed and represented new experiences. Though the final quarter of the game still outstays its welcome and makes you go on some pointless fetch quests and add unnecessary padding. I did more of the side quests this time around and found the characters connected to them really charming too. There were things I appreciated about it greatly on both runs. The story is fairly decent, with a few superb moments that played with the passing of time, such as the planting of the seed and finding it grow centuries later, and the realisation of who the old lady in the temple is. Grus and Girahim are quirky and unusual characters for the series. The end act is brutally emotional. I was sad to see certain companions depart, and that sense of loss is now amplified further by Iwata's name appearing at the very end. Mm. Skyward Sword perfects the 3D Zelda series started by Ocarina of Time in a wealth of ways and gave the Wii the swan song it merited. But there were also many signs here that Link needed to move on. Thank you, everybody, for all your correspondence featured throughout. We also have our brief pithy three-word reviews from Twitter at Kane and Rince. So, uh, Jacob says, accuracy ruins combat. Gaio Pinto, calibrating Wii Motion Plus. Mark Nathers, stupid bomb bowling. Adam Capone says, hand-holding simulator. Emmanuel uh, Onslaught says, just couldn't finish. Gustav Dahl says, Groose is awesome. Play critically. Legend of Groose. Ashley Johnson, wonderfully unexpected water. Wayne Michael says, wonderful yet flawed. The Norman Nerd says, motion done right. Craig McAdam, last week classic. And finally, Francesco, prequel, experiment, masterpiece. Wow, what a spread. So, how do we summarise? I haven't even decided which order we're going to go in, but let's start with former Nintendo employee, Mikhail Kroder. When I when I first finished The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword, back in the, uh, the tail end of 2011, I definitely felt that uh, it was my favourite 3D Zelda other than Ocarina of Time. Wow. Um, and I still feel that way uh, after getting this far into my second playthrough. Uh, and the reason is Majora's Mask came after uh, Ocarina of Time, of course. Um, and while I love it almost as much, it's like we discussed in the podcast episode itself. It's just that the time limit seems at odds with uh, with uh, with Zelda games and their 
focus on exploration. Wind Waker has always felt kind of uh, unfinished to me or, or rushed. Uh, I'm sorry about that, Lee. I know it's your favorite one. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, Twilight Princess, even though the dungeons are probably the best in the whole series, um, kind of always felt like a retread, a little bit too much for me. So there was, I felt like every puzzle, every kind of fight that I had in that game, I've al- already done before in some other form, and nothing really stumped me or, or, uh, or st- uh, yeah, inhibited my progress. And then um, Skyward Sword came along. And it's all the little, little differences, all the way that it plays with or strays from Zelda tradition that really enamored, uh, enamored me to it. So there's the motion controls and there's a physical learning curve. Uh, there's the fact that items are not always found in a dungeon or upgraded in a dungeon and that you don't always uh, use the item to uh, defeat the boss. Like, for example, the beetle. You, you don't use that to defeat Girahim. Good point. Just uh, thinking, thinking of something. I've liked, I really like the, uh, the stamina meter, something that we haven't even talked about, I believe. Yeah, true, true. Uh, just the fact that you could... It w- was really fun to athletically uh, uh, storm through the environment, even though, I mean, it could have probably done with uh, with a, a, a little bit of a slower depletion but yeah I, I really like that the whole dynamic uh, and just so many other things it's it's all those differences that really made the game stood out to me and feel, make it feel really refreshing and it hit a, it really hit a note with me mm, lovely Leah then so I would be very hard pressed to rank Zelda games. Um, I <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely Wind Waker at the top, uh, as as we've said. Uh, but I, I think that um, just kind of comparing uh, Skyward Sword to the ones that were closest to it chronologically, um, in particular, I'm thinking of uh, of Twilight Princess here. They were both Wii titles, and I think that. I enjoyed the um, the setting of Twilight Princess maybe a bit more. I really do love uh, that that this game does so much with what it can do graphically. Like it 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 uses its um, it uses its limitations as strengths rather than as weaknesses, and I think that that's that's really a great thing to see. Uh, I, I think that it's beautiful. And while I might not like the setting quite as much, the fact that they have refined the controls and done so much more with that uh, sits very well with me. So I, I really like Skyward Sword. Uh, I think that it does have some weaknesses, but it's it's fascinating to me how they picked up on some things that do come back in... Um, in timeline later entries in the series uh, chronologically earlier. But um, when you, when you look at in, in particular, we didn't talk too much about the final boss fight, but um, th- it's not, it's not Ganondorf, but it's Ganondorf. Um, it, mm. and you know, just seeing that and kind of having them tie in this explanation that I think actually works pretty well as to why this character keeps coming back uh, is, 
I, I really liked that. I liked that story wise. Yeah. And I, I just I found that to be a real strength of this game. And I mean, there's some things that don't quite fit. Um, it now now that we've done the Minish Cap podcast, it really bothers me that he's still got the green hat. I wasn't even thinking about that before. So thanks for that, ah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, Retcon. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, I, I really liked what they did. It might not be perfect. It might not uh, have everything I, I would have wanted. Uh, but I, I thought that overall it was a success and I enjoyed playing it. Yeah, so I've recently played, I don't know if you've been aware of this, but I've recently played every core Zelda game in the space of a year and a half. <laughs> and despite that, I just played 60 hours of the five-year-old one that came out on the Wii, Skyward Sword. And I was never bored. I had a thoroughly excellent time from start to finish. Occasionally I was frustrated by fee or the recalibration of the controls or, or things like that. But really those things paled into insignificance compared to the amount of sheer pleasure I was getting out of the experience. I would say that there are still other games in the series which I am more emotionally attached to for whatever reason. Often it's atmosphere. I think that Majora's Mask has a really special vibe and... I'm very fond of the Twilight Princess's particular, yeah, just uh, its its atmosphere, its overall palette, literal and metaphorical. Uh, Skyward Sword feels just like another really strong, really fun Zelda to me with a few things that make it fresh, the control system in particular, especially I'm speaking as somebody who never played Twilight Princess with even basic Wii controls. I played it on the Cube and then I played it on the Wii U. Mm. So I didn't play Waggle. I've never played Waggle Zelda before. <laughs> and uh, and it worked really well for me on by and large. Yeah, with with those few exceptions. And once again, the the puzzling, the dungeons, the traversal, the environments, all just an enormous amount of pleasure to to get around and to solve my way through so yeah it's a it's a strong recommendation from me um i'm sort of aware that it feels like we've sort of flown in the face of quite a lot of the the correspondence we've had but uh, as always we only give our very honest personal opinions uh let's conclude with josh because i know he loves it <laughs> so um when I originally completed Skyward Sword, I had considered the idea that this was my favourite entry in the series. Um, since then, little things about it that became more glaring as time went on, and especially on this revisit, have kind of... Uh, reduced that level of affection... Um, but still, I, I think there's so much to love about Skyward Sword. For, for me, it's very much a game of very, very high peaks and a couple of low valleys in terms of quality. I think the aesthetic, um, the art direction is really strong, amongst the strongest in the, the whole series. I just adore the soundtrack. I think the music is exceptional and if if you don't play the game i'd recommend just getting the soundtrack on its own because i think it it stands alone as a piece of uh, music um it's it's fantastic and all the characters are full of um charisma and energy i really love groose groose is just uh, amazing <laughs> he's the best best uh, person ever 
Um, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but I, I, I found all the characters um, really compelling. And yeah, just some really great temple designs. It's a shame about Fee's condescension. It really, really bothered me this time round. But overall, I would take a game with really uh, big positives and a, a few major flaws over the kind of tepid experience I had with Phantom Hourglass, which never irritated me as much, but never wowed me as much either. Hmm. Thank you, everybody. Uh, yeah, so it does just remain for me, Leon, to thank Josh, Leah, Mikhail, as well as our correspondents, our editor, Jay, and of course, to all of you for listening, just one Zelda to go, A Link Between Worlds, Triforce of the Gods 2, in about a month's time, when you're probably many of you will be enjoying Breath of the Wild on Wii U or Switch. Looking forward to that. But next time, in issue 258, the Cana Rinse panel is joined by a development team, the working parts, as we dissect their sunken forest frog adventure, They Breathe. They Breathe.